for the last several weeks, we've been doing just kind of a brief overview, very, very brief of the entire Bible. We'd spent two weeks, I think, on the New Testament. And just want, what, I, what I want you to have, what I long for you to possess, is some sense that the Bible and the individual components of the Bible are not just opaque to you. Right? It's like, I don't know what's going on in Philippians. How could I possibly know that? Right? But rather, that you'd have some sense like, oh, I know if I'm looking for information about this, this is the drawer to open. And when I'm reading, I don't know, Mark, here's the things that I might recognize like, oh, this is why they say that Mark is, you know, short and in a hurry and focuses on Jesus' um, role as a servant, that you'd be able to recognize kind of the signpost for that. That you would just, the scriptures themselves would be familiar to you to be like instead of if you get dropped into a town and you're walking around or driving around and you have no idea where anything is that's very different from walking around the town in which you grew up right so the familiarity with the thing is just going to help it kind of give up its secrets to you and so what we're trying to do is give just another layer this is like a lifetime process but another layer that you could stop and say okay I, I understand what's going on here and so we did the old testament I mean we did the new testament first and now the last couple of weeks we're doing the Old Testament. And we made it basically up through the first couple of sections. But you have to tell me what we did last week by way of review. Okay. So does anybody remember what's the, what's the first section of the Old Testament called? The law is an answer. And what else? Pentateuch, which means what? Five. You hear the Pentagon, you know, Penta. So the first five books, Matt, uh, not Matthew, first five books are... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the books of Moses, and we saw what those are about. And then what's the next chunk thereafter? It is the history books, right? And where does that run? From what to what? Joshua to Esther. Uh, Joshua to what now? Esther. Esther. Yeah, and so it gets, uh, I couldn't tell if you said Esther or Ezra, right? And so as you, as you run through, you got, you got Joshua and Judges, and then you get what comes next? Samuel. Yeah, before, right before Samuel is Ruth, right? Joshua and Judges and then Ruth. And then you're going to get Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings, Chronicles, Chronicles. And they're going to kind of clean things up with the Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which are kind of like a little funny kind of tail end books to the whole thing. And we, I think that's as far, am I right? Is, did we get through all that last week? I think we did. And then we also, did we also discuss or did we not discuss, forgive me, I literally don't know the answer to this, the writings. There's no way we got to Hosea. No. Did we do the five? Did we do, did we do the Psalms and Proverbs and all that stuff? We just did the framework of things. Yeah, we did. I know we, we did talk about Hosea as a particular, but we didn't. Do, we definitely didn't do the prophets. Did we do Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes? What you did is you gave us a broad overview of how the Old Testament breaks up by genre. Yes. And that's and it. You lumped yeah. together, and then you went back and started by going through the book. Okay, and we went through all the books. Where did we stop? Nehemiah. Did, Nehemiah. 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 Ezra. Nehemiah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So basic. So Ezra. Nehemiah. Okay. So that's good. And I'm sorry for not knowing that myself. That would have been a useful thing for me to know. Yeah. And Nehemiah is spelled wrong. We told you that. So we didn't talk about Esther at all. Okay. That's good. Well, Esther, and then we'll do the writing. So who's Esther? What she? Why did she get a book in the Bible? What's what? Where does her story fit into the whole thing? Do you guys have any idea? Like, can you put her in the timeline? She's a Jewish girl. That's true. Okay, what is a Jewish girl doing living in Persia? Where does this fit into the story? Exile. Okay, this is important. Yeah, Joyce? I understand the same thing. 
Exile? Okay, so did we say this? If you're, if you're going to study the Old Testament, there is a single, once, once you get past the beginning of the thing, right? Main, main event, let's do it like this, main events in the Old Testament. In Genesis, there are four. We talked about these last week. Four big events in Genesis. What are they? The first one is the biggest. Creation. Creation. Second one is pretty bad. Third, flood. Okay, these are big, big deals. And Genesis is going to build its foundation. And then as we go along, a whole bunch of different stuff is going to happen. We're going to, you know, I don't know, they're going to, the Exodus, they're going to leave through the Red Sea. And God's going to call them into a people. They're going to go have, fight a bunch of wars and, uh, and conquer the land. There's all these things. But once they're in, once the history really begins, at the end of the line is going to be like this gargantuan event, apart from which the rest of the Old Testament makes no sense, right? It's actually a double event. It's at the end of the kingdom. As, this, as the story runs through, most of the story is written in anticipation of the end. What's going to happen at the end of the story about the kingdoms of Israel and Judah? It's huge, and it's really, really bad. What's that a big event? Babylon is, is, is the half, is the, is the final one. And what's right before it, Judy? What are you going to say? What? Assyria. So here's the deal. You just, when you're reading the Old it'd be like if you were, I don't know, if you were reading... A, a book about um, Oahu. You're reading a book about the Hawaiian island of Oahu in the 40s, okay? 1940s, 1930s in Oahu, and the book is telling us, oh, look, and we have a military base there, and it's da da da. What is that? In, what are you waiting to happen in that book? You're waiting for the attack on Pearl Harbor. You know it, right? The, whatever else they're saying about, oh, look, there's a bunch of submarines. Oh, look, there's a battleship. You're, you're thinking throughout the entire book, like, they're going to be in the bottom of the ocean. The attack is coming. You would never read a book about 1940s Hawaii without having looming in your mind, the attack on Pearl Harbor is coming, right? Well, when you read the Old Testament, what you have to understand is that the attack is coming, and it's going to come in two different stages. The first stage is going to be that the Assyrians come in and they decimate everybody in 722 B.C. 722 B.C., Assyria comes in. And it is a massive, massive event. And it, it blows up half of God's people, basically. The, the nation has been... Remember we saw the nation divided into Israel and Judah. Israel keeps the name, but Judah kept the promise. This was back... Uh, around 1,000 B.C.-ish, a little later than that. And now, we're, the, now there's two parallel kingdoms, and they're running through, and all these books, the Kings and the Chronicles and all these things, they're all about this time period. But at the end of that time period, it's going to get rough, okay? Assyria's going to come in under, under uh, do, you remember, do you know who? Do you know who the bad guy is for Assyria? Sennacherib, right? Bad dude, rarely, like, historically, like, extra-biblically, nasty dude, mean dude. These are a vicious, violent people. What's the capital of Assyria? Nineveh. Nineveh. You know a book about Nineveh? Jonah. Jonah. Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? He didn't, why does he not like them? Because they're really, really bad. Really, really bad. And what is he afraid is going to happen if he does go to Nineveh? God is going to be merciful to them, and I hate it when he does that, right? That's what the whole book is about, is these guys are evil, they deserve to die, and if I go tell them to repent, they just might. And then God will be merciful, and I hate that, okay? Because we hate Assyria, because they're vicious and cruel. And when they roll into town, it's really, really ugly. That's going to happen in 722. This is a huge, massive event, okay? But only half, the other half of the people of God, Judah, 
they get to watch it happen. And when they watch it happen, what are they supposed to do? They realize, oh, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't kidding. He said he was going to do this. He did do this, he being God. God said that if we didn't repent and turn to him, he'd bring a judgment. They didn't repent and turn to him, so he judged them. And so what Judah is supposed to do is look at that and be like, okay, 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 I get it. And instead, what do they do? They don't do that. Right? Instead, they look over the fence and be like, Woo, you guys must be evil. But we didn't get judged. So carry on. And they carry on for about another 100 and, what is it, 40 years or so to 586 B.C. And a new nation comes in, Babylon. And when Babylon comes in, they do to Judah what Assyria had done to Israel. And this is really the end. They do it differently. Assyria completely obliterates them and they're gone. Babylon doesn't kill everybody. It kills a lot of people, but it brings away a remnant and it puts them on, puts them on ice. Okay? This is, if, if Sennacherib is a serious guy, who is Babylon's commander when all this is going on? King. King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so what, whenever you're reading any of the history books in the Old Testament, it's got to have something to do with these massive events. Assyria whooping up on Israel, the northern tribes in 722, or Babylon whooping up on Judah in 586. Everything is, an, everything is written in anticipation of this moment that's about to happen. Or, we'll see, some stuff is written after that and kind of in the midst of the cleanup, okay? But Assyria and Babylon, 722, 586, these are the central determining event in this latter half of the Old Testament. It's a massive, massive thing. Okay, so with all that said, you got it? Is that locked in your brain? You see these two things, huge deal. With all that said, what the heck is Esther? What's Esther about? Persia. So what does Persia have to do with this party? They conquered Babylon. Yes. Okay, what Gary said is they conquered Babylon. So after Babylon destroys Judah, they don't stay, they're not in power today. They didn't stay in power forever. Kingdoms give way, kingdoms give way, kingdoms give way. This has been going on for a long time. P.S. America will not be what it is today in 500 years. Do you understand this? Or tomorrow, says Judy Walker, right? And that's true. Like kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. It has been going on for a very long time. Somebody, maybe our generation, or maybe not, I don't know, but somebody's going to live through where America ceases to be what it is and we fall into you know, the ash heap of history just like Babylon did, just like Egypt did, just like Assyria did, just like Persia did. Various ones get their moment in the sun. And so after Babylon rules and dominates, God raises up another people to take down Babylon, all right? And these people are going to be the Persians. And so what we find in the book of Esther is, therefore you can tell if it's, if it's happening in Persia, is this pre or post Babylonian exile? Post. So, so Esther is the end of the story. This is like after all that stuff goes down and the Jews have been scattered around, there's different things going on. There is this Jewish girl who's living in Iran. That's Persia. She's living in Persia. And there's a story about the people of God, even in this miserable circumstance, prevailing because of the mercy of God. And that's what Esther's story is really all about. But she fits there after this whole big event. Make sense? Okay, now, a very, very short-shifting, I mean, Esther. There's so much happening there. But anything else you guys want to add? Anybody fans of Esther that you'd say, yeah, but Esther's really about this? Catherine? Saving the Jews. Yes, right. Yeah, so, so there's, a guy, there's a guy that hates all the Jews in Esther. There's a guy that hates all the Jews, and he wants, he kind of works, curries favor with the king of Persia, 
and he wants to be, his name is Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes. Yeah, but it's the same guy. They just have different names. Xerxes. I get, I get Xerxes and Artaxerxes confused. Xerxes, okay. And he, so, so this guy named uh, Haman hates all the Jews, and he wants, to, he wants to obliterate all the Jews, and he's going to do it. But then there's this Jewish girl, Esther, who also curries favor with the king. And her great, what is, her, what is Esther's great statement? Do you remember what she says? And they're like, her uncle, cousin, is basically saying, hey, listen, um, you're sleeping with the king. You should go ask him to not kill all the Jews. And, and what does she say when she does it? That's it. If I perish, I perish. She says to her, who knows but that you've come into the world for such a time as this. Get in there. And she's like, all right, I'll do it. If I perish, I perish. If I make the king angry and he takes off my head, so be it. And he, she doesn't make the king angry, and the, and the king listens to her, and there's this fantastic reversal in the story of Esther. Of all the bad guys get taken down, and all the good guys get exalted up, and God prevails for his people. Okay, we got a couple of hands. Yeah, Ellen? Be really loud, though. You're far away. Esther is a love story. Um, it's the love she has for her mother-in-law when the son died. Okay, so you're thinking of Ruth. Ruth and Esther often get confused because there's the two Old Testament books named after women. So yeah, Ruth is a little bit of a different story. Yep, that's okay. John? Um, the king in Esther, the Persian king, the book refers to him by the name of Hanshalaris. However, historically we know him by what the Greeks call Xerxes. Which is Xerxes, that's right. And his actual Persian name, I've seen it somewhere, can't pronounce it, so sounds like something you coughed up out my Persian is also poor, so that's okay. No, no worries about it all. Okay, so Kelly Sue. The, the curious thing about the book of Esther is God is never mentioned. Right. Did you notice this? Have you ever noticed this? If you, if you read through the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. But his evidence is all over the place because there's so many coincidences that are God related. That's right. So we'll often talk about the book of Esther as a book of providence, which is kind of the Christian word for divine coincidence, right? Is the Christian word for... Um, the fact that God is working mysteriously hidden, unseen, under things to bring about his ends. And that's kind of how it works in my life, too. Everything that happens in my life is very providential. I've never had, God doesn't show up and, you know, speak to me. Something's happening? What's happening? Everybody just stop looking at me. Um, um, so, yeah, so, so, so Esther is a funny book because God, it's a book of the Bible that never mentions God. And yet he's clearly working through all of it. Okay, so those books, Esther... And Ezra and Nehemiah are all history, but they're all happening after the Babylonian captivity. That's why Nehemiah's got to rebuild the wall because the Babylonians blew it up. Ezra's got to rebuild the temple because the Babylonians blew it up, right? Esther's got to protect her people because they're vulnerable under the, under the rule of wicked kings. All make sense? Okay, which gives us to what for many people is a favorite five books of the Bible, a favorite section for oftentimes, these writings. So take a look at, take a look at your sheet. And let's run through kind of the, what we call the writings or the poetry, or sometimes it's called the wisdom literature. What's Job about? Job is about, we got one answer, suffering. Anybody want to compete with suffering? Where were you? Okay, yeah, who, who asked the question, where were you and I, Bob? God's asking Job, he's putting him in his place. Yes, okay. So very often, we'll talk about the book of Job as a book of suffering, which is fair, because it's just so full of suffering. But 
There's another option for what Job is about. And I would say sovereignty is what I'd be looking for. We experience it through the lens of suffering. But the answers, the answers don't speak to suffering. The answers speak to God's sovereignty. And his great big response to Job is like, where were you when I you know, created the ostrich? Like, did you have anything to do with that? Can you, do you know where I store the hail? Do you know? Like, he's like, who are you to question how I run my universe? Like, I invented gravity. So, like, sit down. Is, is basically, the, basically what his response is. And Job doesn't say, well, that's not fair. Job, like, puts his hand over his mouth. He's like, you're right. It's your kingdom. Brian? It's also about how can anyone be really faithful to God if they might be doing it for mercenary reasons? How, well, okay, so how, how do you say, how can anybody be faithful to God if they're doing it for mercenary reasons? If, 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 how can you tell that someone's really faithful to God? Oh, oh, yes mercenary reasons if God is blessing those who obey. Yes, okay, so, and this is true. So Job is, do you guys, I mean, we, we know Job for being somebody who suffers terribly, but he's also somebody who's incredibly wealthy. He's absolutely loaded. Hang on, John, give me a minute. He's, he's super loaded, and then, and Satan's like, well, no wonder he obeys you. You give him everything he ever wants. Take it all away and see what he does. And he takes it all away. And what does Job do? He's still faithful, right? Now, he wants to die, right? Because he's miserable. And his wife's like, just curse God and die. Like, be done with this. And he's like, listen, it's his world. It's his to do. But I would really love to know what he's doing because this is unspeakably painful, right? So it's a, it's a great book. Judy? Isn't it also the oldest book in the Bible? It is. Well, okay, so Judy's question is, is it the oldest book in the Bible? It is chronologically extremely early. So what, it's, it's hard to know, was it written before Genesis or not I don't know it's set in the time of Genesis okay and so it, it, it may have been the earliest book written but it is certainly the it's before everything I mean Genesis it's hard to get before Genesis 1 1 that's hard to proceed that but but it is super super early and we know that because things like well how do we do you know why we know that what makes us think it's so old do you guys have any clues for why this is detailing but why just for interest sake why, is, why do we think, when we, people say stuff all the time, you know, Mark was written by Peter. Well, how do you know? How do you know that Job is old? We're not making stuff up. Has Satan not fallen yet? Because uh, what? Has Satan not fallen yet? I think Satan's fall would be very, very early. Um, uh, right. So Satan is, Satan is living out his role of the accuser, which, is, which may have been his lawful role. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to take the bait on that because that will blow up the entire class. So I don't know. But... <laughs> But, but so that's a good, it's a good guess. There's something going on there that we can look at that. Chris, how, why do we know it's old? External da- dating of the, the book itself. Well, but the way that you would date is based on its internal content. So things like, so Job is functioning as a priest for his children. So it's pre-Levitical priesthood. Job is like the family priest. So there's some things that are very, very primitive signs. Like that didn't, those things would have, once you had the Levitical priesthood, that thing would have been gone. So there's a few things you're like, ah, oh, this is like very, very, very early in the story. Okay, so that's Job. What's the, what's the next book? Next to the writings of the, of the wisdom literature. Psalms. All right, who wrote the Psalms? David. Whole bunch of people, right? David is kind of the, num- the number one contributor to the Psalms. What are the Psalms? Songs. It's, a song, it's song lyrics. It's nothing, it's poems, but it's poems set to music. It's songs, right? How about half of them are David? There's a, there's a bunch of other ones. Um, but what do you love? Why are the Psalms so beloved, you guys? 
What, why do you like them? Why do we create like New Testament and Psalms? Why do people have quiet times in the Psalms? Why do we read the Psalms every Sunday? Why don't we read Nehemiah every Sunday? What's up with that, Joyce? They expressed our feelings about how we're experiencing this life of faith. Yeah. Like our honest questions and frustrations and praise to God. Yes, Joyce is saying because they express our feelings, our honest frustrations, kind of how we're experiencing this life. And I heard a voice, was it Brad? Yeah, I said they just come from the heart. Yeah. Yeah, we love the Psalms because so much of the Bible, um, I mean, that we're, we're whole people, and the Bible's going to address our intellect, our emotions, our will. But the reality is, and I don't like this truth, but the reality is that emotions predominate in our lives. And the Psalms speak into that in ways that are really powerful. There's lots of complaints. There's an awful lot of like, God, what is up? I hate the way you do this. Like, I really hate this. This makes no sense to me. There's other Psalms that are just extolling glory and joy and praise. People love the Psalms, and they're really worth knowing. And I w- I've mentioned this to you before, but I was late to realize that they're also filled with really good theology. I used to be like, okay, this is like the emotional basket case book, so that y'all deal with that. Um, but I was wrong. And it's filled with like deep insights and lots and lots of theology that I've only in the last probably decade come to appreciate. John? There are, uh, there are several very strong messianic psalms. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So the Messianic Psalms, there's, shows up, oh, you want to jot these down? You want, you want Psalms that are chiefly about Jesus? There's a ton, but I would say maybe the most Messianic would be Psalm 2. Psalm 2, man, it's so clutch. It's explicitly about the anointed one, which in Hebrew is called Messiah. Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 22, 23, which you know about, but that's very Messianic. 22, 23, 24. Psalm 45. Psalm 69. Very cruciform. Read 69. You'll know it's about a crucifixion. Psalm 110. Uh, Kelly, any others that you would say are like go to? Two, definitely. Two, 22, 23, 24, 45, 69, 110. There are others. Can anybody think of others that are? 42. 42, no, 45. 45, 45. Is big time. Those, if you read through those, 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 you'd be like, okay, this is so much in here. Um, which, which of the Psalms is the New Testament's favorite chapter of the Bible? One of the Psalms gets quoted about twenty-three times in the New Testament, and it's one of the ones that I just mentioned. Do you know? Not twenty-third. We love that, but the New Testament loves something else. That's it. The stone the builders rejected became the chief. Uh, no, no. The, the answer is, and Chris, you're, you're doing it with your fingers. You want to do it out loud? 110. 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the New Testament's favorite Old Testament chapter. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and make, an enemy, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus talks about it. How is it that David, speaking through the Holy Spirit, says the Lord said to my Lord? Like, which is it? Right? Every time you see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, that's an allusion to Psalm 110. Hebrews goes crazy on Psalm 110. It's all about Melchizedek, this priest that is coming. Um, the king, so Psalm, Psalm 110 is about the king and the priest, but it's the same guy. And what's up with that? Because only one man is qualified to be both king and priest. It's a picture of Christ. Psalm 110 is worth knowing. All right? So that's, there's so much in the Psalms. We could do that forever. We won't do it anymore. Okay? So Job, Psalm, Catherine? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, of all the, and 
Yes. And if, you, if you're looking for psalms of praise and you don't know where to start, start at the end. Go to 150, then 149, then 148, then 147. Just work your way back. Psalm 150. And by the way, the reason for this, I think, uh, we talked about this sometime recently. I remember telling you guys that the psalms are actually a meta-narrative as well, right? But the story ends in praise, right? Along the way, we're gonna, you're going to introduce in Psalm 1 to two different characters, right? There's the man who... Uh, one guy who's going to be like a tree planted by streams of living water, right? Everything he's going to do prospers. His leaves are going to flourish, you know? And then there's this other guy who's going to blow away. He's going to be like chaff. Psalm 1 is introducing us to these main characters. You will be like a man whose tree, you'll be a, you'll be a man like a tree planted by streams of, living, streams of water. You will flourish. Or you're going to be like chaff that blows away. Which, what's it going to be? And as you follow this psalm, this psalm story, Psalm 2, you get introduced to the king, this Messiah. And as the story goes on, you see like, man, there's reversals and life does not go the way we thought it was going to go. And like, I'm like the tree by the water. So why are my leaves so dry? This is not what I thought you said, right? Meanwhile, that rich guy over there, I happen to know that he's cheating on his wife. And why is he, why is everything going so well for him, right? There's this Throughout the Psalms, there's a sense of like, the good guys will prosper, the bad guys will suffer, and then that intersects with real life. And it's like, man, it's just not, not the way I thought it was going to go, right? But by the end of the story, it all erupts in praise. All of the badness and all of the grief and all of the yuckiness of this world, it all resolves, right? And even this one who appeared to have his act all clean turns out to have been a phony. And this one who did cheat on his wife repents and is restored. And there is life and mercy and forgiveness. It's not just like eventually the bad guys get it, but sometimes the bad guys bend the knee and come under grace. And that's good news because guess who the bad guys are? Right? So the Psalms are telling the story, but it's a story that ends in praise. It's a story that ends in joy and delight. And that's, which as you read through it, watch for it is this, in this, this great narrative. Okay? All right. Proverbs. We just did a series on this. Tell me something intelligent about Proverbs. What do we know about Proverbs. Written by Solomon, overwhelming. A little bit isn't, but vast majority is Solomon, yes. What's it about? Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Nancy? Common sense. Common sense. A lot of it really is, very much so. Yes. And there's also a meta narrative to that, right? There's a path. And there is, remember the two women of Proverbs? Wisdom and folly, wisdom and folly. And they both make the exact same promise. And one of them is lying. And who are you going to follow? What, what will the fruit of your life be? Whose call, wisdom calls out in the streets, let the simple come in, but so does the fool. And so which story are you, which story is going to be, it's very similar to the Psalms, right? There's, these, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's two kind of trajectories. It's very John three sixteen, right? There's two ends. One end is eternal life, and one end is perishing. This paradigm just permeates the scriptures. We see it in the Proverbs, we see it in Psalms. It's all over the place. It's the book of wisdom. All right, what's next? Ecclesiastes. That's a, such a strange book. What is the, what's going on in Ecclesiastes? Okay, Terry, nothing new under the sun. What's it about? How would you, if you had to, did you come up with a one-sentence summary of Ecclesiastes? Joyce? Live in, live in light of the fact that you're going to Okay, that's not a bad answer, right? When you get to the very end of Ecclesiastes, that's kind of his, the conclusion of the matter. Live in light of the fact that you're going to die. I like that. Was there a hand? Gina? Everything in this world is meaningless compared to heaven. 
Okay, Every, Gina says everything in this world is meaningless compared to heaven. There's this, he says this phrase, what's, what's the phrase that he uses over and over and over again? Yeah, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. In the, if we, all we have, if, if materialism is true, and all we have is this spinning ball made out of physical atoms and there's nothing else, he's like, what's the point? The rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish, the godly and the ungodly, Everybody dies. Big friggin' deal, right? All you're doing is just delaying the inevitable. Everything is spinning towards oblivion under the sun, right? But if there's more to the universe than the universe itself, then perhaps we would find meaning there, right? What, what is Ecclesiastes, you guys? Not just what it's about, but what's the genre of it? What's the framework of it? Yes. The reason he can say it's all meaningless is because he goes sequentially and systematically through all these different ways of finding fulfillment and joy or whatever purpose in life. He's like, well, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. None of it's going to work. That's exactly right. Take my wisdom. I did it for you. That, I mean this, you know? Solomon is the wealthiest person. He's the wisest person. He's probably got the most women of anybody that's ever lived. He has everything that people think might work. He has all of them. And he's like, all right, let's, let's do it. Thousand wives, let's see how that works. Infinite money, let's see how that works. Brilliance, let's see how that works. Agricultural success. No matter what, it, he's like, let's do it all. And what his conclusion is, nothing works. You know the phenomena when you're waiting for the next package to arrive from Amazon? <laughs> and don't you think it's go this one's going to work? Do you know that phenomena? It's like, when this little doodad arrives, then I'll be happy. It'll finally work. Solomon's like, let's bring on the trucks. And the end of the book, he's like, uh, none, of, none, none of it worked. Fear God. I, I think what Joyce said, too, is really important because it's not just meaningless, meaningless, but your life is a vapor. Yes. But you, you're, you're not, you have no eternity. You have no term. permanence. Yeah, absolutely. Under the sun, this body's going to decay. Now, it's also going to be remade. And that's, a, that's another whole thing. But that's what Ecclesiastes is about. Now, what's hard about Ecclesiastes when you read it is that you got to read it with two voices, okay? There's the voice of the young man living out the experiment, and then there's the voice of the old man looking back on the experiment. And it's complicated. So you could quote Ecclesiastes and be like, well, the Bible says, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Like, all right. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But then you got to ask the question, wait, who's saying that? Was that young Solomon who's running the experiment? Or is that old Solomon who's looking back on the experiment? Does it make sense? So it's, a, some, it's like, ah, it's hard. Sometimes it can be genuinely hard to know, like, wait, 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 wait. Was this your conclusion? Is this the mature conclusion? Or is this the foolish experiment? I'm not sure what's going on here. It's a complicated book. But it's, it's, worth, it's worth taking some time to try to unpack. And then Solomon's got one more. What's his last book? Song of Solomon. What is Song of Solomon about? Love. Can you be more specific? Marriage. Marriage, okay. Song of Solomon, and this is, I think this has become better known now than it used to be, but if you read like older commentaries, commentaries love to pretend that Solomon, I mean that Song of Solomon is about marriage between Christ and the church. Okay? It's not. Okay? Now, all marriage 
is about marriage between Christ and the church. So yes, eventually, sort of. But I'm talking like, in, I mean, if you read old commentaries on Song of Solomon, they'll, they'll, they're just so stupid, okay? Apologies. It's just so dumb. They'll be like, when, um, when Solomon says something about her breasts, the commentary is like, so there's her two breasts represent the Old and New Testaments. And it's like, no, they don't, actually, okay? Um, and so when you read Song of Solomon, just let it be what it is. It's romantic. It is erotic. It is sexual. It is marriage. It's human. But romantic, erotic, sexual marriage points to a greater love between Christ and the church, okay? But just let it, just be honest with it. Don't be so puritanic, you know, just, just let it be what it is, okay? Um, and it's a very, it's a very, very poetic, very image-based romantic book, and it's great. So Song of Solomon, worth, worth reading. Anybody got brilliant insights on the Song of Solomon? Some favorite line? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of weird, like the way that they physically describe one another, yeah, yeah, it's some very, very strange ways that they poetically describe one another's bodies, top to bottom. So check it out. It's a great book. All right, that gives us through all the wisdom literature. Okay, those five, there's all so much there. It's, it's, now, because it's poetry, the genre is different. They're not didactic. It's not Romans, right? It's going to say things that are not literally true. The Bible frequently says things that are not literally true, but are nevertheless actually true, Right? She really was beautiful, but she didn't have, you know, goats for breasts. Twin fawns of a gazelle. Your, your breasts are like twin fawns of a gazelle. I don't think I've ever said that to Kelly, and I'm not sure what she would think if I did say that, but he meant it well, right? It's poetic imagery. It's not literally true, but it points to something that is good. I don't exactly know what's good about twin fawns of a gazelle, but maybe they just match. I don't know. Okay. How much time do we have? We don't have much time. Do we have time? Do you want to try to do the major prophet? Do you want to kick that down the field? Keep talking about the gazelle thing. Is that helpful to you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. Uh, I think we should stop. Do you think we should stop? So here's what we're going to do. Here's your assignment. If you didn't get one of these sheets, they're up here on the front row. And next week, we should be able to... Are we doing anything weird next week? We're here, right? Everything's normal. Next week, we're going to bang out the prophets. Here's what I want you to look for. You could do a little bit of research. Pre-game this. There are five major prophets, and there are 12 minor prophets. The major ones are simply longer. The minor ones are a little bit shorter, but one of the majors is actually really short. Okay, so just live with the complexity of that. But go back. What is Isaiah about? How is he different from Jeremiah? What the heck is going on in Ezekiel? And Hosea, you may have heard of, and Jonah, you know. But you got anything on Habakkuk? I mean, what is that all about? Like, you can go through and look. If you've got a study Bible, just look at the first page of each of these prophets. Just see. See what they're about. And see if we can discuss it when we come back. But I will tell you, they're all about this. What was this? The exile. So the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian butt kick. This thing that's going to come in, the prophets are all either saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Or they're saying, it's here. Or they're saying, well, that just happened, right? So we organize all of the prophets. They're either pre-exilic, exilic, or post-exilic. Generally speaking, they're in chronological order. It's a little bit of wonkiness, but generally the last three are going to be post-exilic, so you're going to watch that. Generally, they're talking to Judah or Israel, but sometimes they're going to bring in the foreign nations. Obadiah, for instance, is about the Edomites. It's not about the people of God. It's about a neighbor to the people of God. We'll, we'll unpack all that. But just go through it. Take, take some time this week and just go. I'm going to see what's I'm going to read a thing about what's Isaiah, what's Ezekiel, what's Jeremiah, what, what are these things? 
And it would be, it'd be really handy if you knew like, oh, I know which one. One of these books, pick something. One of these books questions the, 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 how does God do what he's doing? One of, the, one of these books, figure out which one this is, is saying, okay, God, um, everything's terrible. Israel's, a, Judah's a mess. And I don't know why you tolerate such treachery. And he says, not to worry, because I'm going to bring in the Babylonians and they're going to completely destroy you. And he said, well, wait, no, 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 that's not what I meant. That's not what I was asking. That's not what I'm looking for. Then it'd be like, if we were in this church, if we were praying, Lord, why, there, why is there so much sin in America? Why is there so much? And he says, hey, I know, I saw that too. North Korea is on its way. It's going to be fine. And we'd be like, what? They're worse than us. There's a, book, there's, a, there's a book in the Old Testament that is specifically this dialogue. One man talking to God and saying, God, I don't understand why you allow the wicked to swallow up people more righteous than themselves. What is your deal? Which one? Don't tell me, but find out which one that is, okay? We'll, t- we'll see if we can't sh- start to place these 17 books kind of in a category in your brain. We'll, we'll do that next week, all right?